Well, good morning, church family. My name is Sam Jordan, and the Old Testament reading is found in Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, my name is Patricia. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Brandon. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew six nineteen through 24. Stop collecting treasures for your own benefit on earth, where moth, moth and rust eat them and where thieves break in and steal them. Instead, collect treasures for yourselves in heaven, where moth and rust don't eat them and where thieves don't break in and steal them. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. Therefore, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how terrible that darkness will be. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. Well, it's almost time for football season. The Broncos returned to training camp a couple days ago, and I'm all, my heart is all a flutter. I'm staying up late reading ESPN reports, watching every interview, listening to everything Peyton's saying, and I think this is going to be the year. It's also the time where athletes get paid, and so some of you who are tuned into this stuff, maybe you catch it, but so-and-so will sign a new contract, and and maybe you're at the point where you hear these numbers and you think, Those, that is a ridiculous amount of money. Like, how many million over how many years? And oh my gosh, if I had that kind of money, you know what I would do. I recently watched an interesting documentary on ESPN. ESPN does these documentaries called 30 for 30. And they did a documentary, I think it was last year, but I saw the rebroadcast of it, called Broke. And I don't know how many of you saw it, but it was about professional athletes who end up as you can guess, broke. And so the statistics are 60% of NBA players are broke within five years of retiring from the league. say, well, 60%, that's pretty high. The numbers are actually much worse worse for NFL players. 78% of NFL players are bankrupt or close to it two years after retiring. And you think, well, why is, how, how did they do that? I mean, how, I mean, the minimum wage, right, for an NFL player is a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And you're thinking, if I only had that. 
And you say, well, how does this happen? I mean, how, how could they let this happen? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. The NFL is particularly precarious because you get paid week to week and teams can cut you. There's no not many guaranteed salaries and things like that. There's also the whole business of athletes, uh, football players, having to pay taxes in every state that they play a game in. Didn't know that, did you? I didn't either until I watched the documentary. So there's, there's, there's that. But then there's also the whole issue of immaturity and sudden wealth. And so you have young people who are, have not learned to handle money of any amount, all of a sudden being given hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then what this documentary was saying is athletes are so competitive that the way they spend money becomes a competition. So they show up at a certain restaurant and someone orders a $3,000 bottle of champagne. The other guy says, give me two of those. And then they, sh- I mean, this is, this is, I can't, you know, but the competitive thing sort of takes over or they go to a club and someone's making it rain in $1 bills and the other guy says, I'll make it rain in 20s. And the other guy says, check this out, I got hundreds. And so all of a sudden the competitive nature, I mean, the, these guys were saying in, in these interviews, they were saying, yeah, we would walk away from an evening out and my right hand man would say, do you know how much we just dropped at that restaurant? And he said, no, I have no idea. He says, we just dropped 50 grand. And he said, Okay. And they lost track of how much they were spending. But the other part of this was the moochers that kind of attached themselves to these guys. So Andre Risen, you know, a wide receiver, he said his entourage at one point was 40 people. And he said, I didn't even know who they were. <laughs> you're like, yeah, if you were number 39 in that group, you're like, doesn't matter if he knows who I am. I'm getting dinner tonight. Bernie Kosar, you'll know that name. He said at one point he was supporting 50 families with his income. All of these people coming out of the woodwork saying, I need this, I need that. And then, of course, these guys were ripe for scammers. So they were prone. There would be people coming to them right in the locker rooms, right after games, with business pitches and all these plans. Which, and these, these, these um, business plans, quote-unquote, had a 90% failure rate. Now, some of you are like, dude, we just prayed for small business. I've got a business plan that's got a much better success rate than that. And we think of these athletes, and we think of these large amounts of money, and you think, well, that's not my story. That will never be me because I, I'm not in the trap of stuff. I'm not in the trap of competitive spending or comparative spending or comparing standards of living. I, I'm not in that trap. I, I'm, my house has never been on MTV Cribs. I'm not in any danger of this. Nobody's coming to my apartment to see my, how, you know, how, how bling bling it is. And yet, all of us know the gradual entanglement of stuff. I was thinking this week of my first job right out of college was to work for the university that I graduated from. I worked for Oral Roberts University, and I led worship for their chapel services. I was 21 years old, and they said they would pay me $18,000 a year. And at 21, I thought that was more money than I could ever imagine what to do with. I bought my first car, a $3,000 Nissan something or other that was like, I don't know, I, it was probably made before I was born. And I thought, this is great. This is, this is, what, what more could I need? Had an apartment that I shared with my friend Brent, and, and, uh, and it was a, you know, kind of a rundown apartment. We bought everything we needed from Walmart. We taped you know, paper blinds up over the windows, and I thought this was like, this was high living, baby. I didn't realize all the things I didn't, I, I, I didn't realize all the things I didn't have until, of course, I got married. <laughs> and, and then I realized, you can't have paper blinds covering the windows. 
So we got married two years later when I moved out here to work for New Life Church in the summer of 2001. And so all of a sudden, our first town home, we're like, okay, well, we need curtains, and I guess we need to repaint, because nobody likes beige walls, apparently. So, so there's all of this, and then when you paint, you've got to buy things to match the paint, apparently. So then there's, you know, then there's, then there's you know, throw pillows that you've got to factor in to match the thing, and all of a sudden, you realize, what am I spending money on? Now, fast forward, I've got four children. We live in a different house. And we have a lot of stuff. And we went through our house this summer. We did a garage sale. We're doing like the just between friends, you know, where, where they sell baby stuff and all. I mean, we're clearing out stuff after stuff. And I still look around and I think, oh my gosh. what? what oh. And then now I, I have this, this encroaching feeling that it's not just that I have the stuff, but the stuff has me. Because now my money is committed to these different things, to the house payment and the this and the that and all, all of this. You know, the, there's this famous quote that John D. Rockefeller, you know, the, the wealthy oil and gas American businessman back in the day, and they said, John, how much is enough? Like, I mean, you've got all this, but how much is enough? And you remember what he said? Just a little bit more. And that's, you know, we laugh at that, but we think that's sort of like me. I mean, how much is enough? I don't know. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we just had that? Or just maybe, what, for me, one more book. One more this. or one, I mean, just a little bit more. And before long, it's not just stuff that you have, but stuff that has you. And it's got this grip on you. The uncomfortable truth is money is a really terrible master. Money and material things are a terrible master because they creep inside of our hearts and inside of our lives, and then they enslave us. And many of us are sitting here this morning thinking, well, is there a way to be free of this? I mean, can I be, I mean, yeah, you say that, Glenn, but we do kind of need this and we do need that. And yeah. But is there a way, A.W. Tozer said this phrase talking about Abraham, is there a way to have all these things and yet possess nothing? Is there a way to have all of this in your life and yet to not have it in your grasp? To not have your hands close around it? Because I think when our hands begin to grasp it and possess it and we want it, that's when all of a sudden we realize, uh-oh, it's got me. Is there another way out? Impulse spending is an interesting thing. My sister is a cognitive psychologist, and she's won you know, different awards and all that. And she just released this book called The Working Memory Advantage, How to Train Your Brain to Be Faster, Stronger, Blah, Blah, Blah. You know? and, and I, yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she's my older sister. She's super smart. Uh, uh, but, but I was reading this one chapter where she's talking about what happens to us when, when we make impulse purchases, purchases or why limited time offers really work. Limited time offers work because it overloads your brain's working memory. Your, your brain's working memory is its like processor. It's its ability to keep multiple windows open, if you will, if you use the computer analogy, and to make connections within it. So let's say, for example, you're on eBay. And let's say that Blu-ray player brand new is $150, but on eBay it's $29.99. And then you start bidding, and then you realize, ooh, now someone's bid is $40. I'm going to bid $45. And it keeps bidding, and all of a sudden the clock is ticking, and you're bidding. Anyone done the eBay bidding thing, right? And all of a sudden you're paying $99 for this 
used Blu-ray player without a warranty that you still have to pay shipping for on top of that. How did you do that? Because the clock was ticking and your ability to process the expense versus the value greatly diminished. So businesses know that. So they make limited time offers because they don't want your brain to really process if this is a good decision. They just want you to panic and they want your amygdala, the emotional part of your brain, to take over and say, yes, I saved 12 bucks. (laughs) But I don't have a warranty, but hey. And this, this thing is all around us. See, this is not rich people problems. This is a human problem. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is there another way? Is there a way out of this entrapment? Is there a way out of this slavery? We're in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in your Bibles in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can turn to Matthew 6 this morning. We've called our sermon series Arriving because it's about the kingdom of God. Jesus came not preaching the way to heaven. Jesus came preaching the arrival of the kingdom of God. Jesus came saying, listen, the government of God, God's rule from the heavens is now arriving on the earth and it's inaugurating a new world, a new reality. It's inaugurating a new people, the church. It's you, my disciples. It's all of us now, 2,000 years later. And so there is this new reign that began arriving with Jesus. But we've also called this arriving because it's, a, it's, it's Jesus giving us a picture of what it means to live in this new way. And so we're saying, okay, so this is how we begin to arrive. Turn with me, Matthew 6. We'll start here with verse 19. You heard it in, in the gospel reading for the morning. I'll read it again. Stop collecting treasures for your own benefit on earth where moth and rust eat them and where thieves break in and steal them. Instead, collect treasures for yourselves in heaven. Where moth and rust don't eat them, and where thieves don't break in and steal them, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's three sections of our text today, and the first one focuses on the location of our treasure. Some people have said, oh, the the, the emphasis in this verse is storing up for yourselves, but that's not true, because later Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So in the two parallel parts of this passage, The difference is not about storing up for yourself. The difference is where. This is an issue not of storing, but of location. This is about where your treasure really is. Where do you think treasure is located? Now, I want to say, the reason I chose Proverbs 6 as the Old Testament reading this morning, go to the ant, you lazy bones. Love that translation. I mean, who says sluggard anyway? Learn from him. Prepare for the winter. The reason I chose that is because that's an important caveat to this. Some people read Matthew 6 and they say, well, you see, that's why I should not have retirement. That's why I shouldn't think about my children's college. That's why I don't really, you know, because Jesus said, don't store it up for yourselves. But if you look at the whole counsel of Scripture, you're going to see that there's a difference between planning and hoarding. There's a difference between planning and hoarding. Proverbs 6, our our Old Testament reading says, plan, you ought to plan, it's prudent to plan. But Jesus says, but don't you get into this hoarding thing, because this is not the location of your treasure. And so the location of the treasure is where Jesus begins to shift our attention. But you say, well, Glenn, how do you store up treasure in heaven? What does that mean? How do I store up treasure in heaven? I mean, where's that, what's that Roth IRA? There's no way to tax that one, right? 
<laughs> How do I do that? Is this another shelter scheme, you know? How do I do this? First Timothy 6, we heard it in our New Testament reading this morning. It says, They are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. What is Paul saying? He's saying, look, by being generous and by sharing your wealth, you're actually storing up treasure in heaven. There is a way to make earthly wealth resound into eternal impact. And Paul says it's by giving it away. Jesus, there's a parallel text to this uh, Matthew text. It's in Luke. Luke 12, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to those in need. Make for yourselves wallets that don't wear out and a treasure in heaven that never runs out. How? How do we do this? By selling and giving to those in need. You're like, wait, so I, I like this. I liked when you said there's a relocation of my treasure, but I don't like that the way to relocate my treasure is by giving. <laughs> because that's, uh, that's, hey man, easy bro, my money. This is Jesus. This is Jesus saying, if I can shift the location of your treasure, I can shift the loyalty of your heart. If I can get you to think that your treasure is not ultimately in the bank account or your net worth, if I can get you to see that there is something more eternal than that, if I can get you to see that there is a payday that is better than your retirement payday, if I can get you to see that there is a legacy that is better than an inheritance legacy, if I can get you to see that, then the way to do this is to give it away. See, what's interesting, Martin Luther was very clear on this even in his preaching, that we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good work. And in fact, one of the reasons why Luther was so upset about the sale of plenary indulgences, and this is something maybe to, to clarify on for you church history buffs. We sort of think that, oh yeah, Luther was angry because the, the, the medieval church was selling indulgences. Well, it's not just that, but plenary indulgences. What's the difference? Plenary indulgences was you are taken care of for life. And up until that point, there was no such thing. See, the, the, the teaching of the church at that time was, look, Every time you do something for those in need, you're storing up for yourself a treasure. And that's not hard to see where they got that idea from. But eventually things got corrupt and they said, well, look, if you actually, if you just make this donation to our building fund, which is actually what they were doing, you, can, you and all of your family can get, can get out of doing any more good works for the rest of your life. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so it was this idea of saying, you don't need to do any more good works if you want to store up treasure in heaven. Just donate to our building fund and not only you, but all your family members go free forever. That's what the plenary word means. Plenary indulgences, full indulgences. And Luther was so upset about that, not just because it was a violation of justification by faith, but Luther was mad about that because it meant that who was going to help the poor people anymore? It meant that all the people who had the means of helping would walk by and say, well, I would help you, but I already gave to the building fund, so I am set. And Luther was saying, this is a great tragedy because now our hearts are not trying to store up treasure in heaven by being generous and by, and by giving to those in need. Instead, we're saying, I've, I've basically got 
the bishop and the pope in my pocket and say, I got it. I bought it. I did that thing. I bought it. I'm fine now. I don't have to do any. And so in all of his Reformation preaching, Luther was careful to say, we're not saved by good works, but make no mistake, we are saved for them. We are supposed to give to those in need. And in doing so, we store up treasures in heaven. A massive shift in the location of our treasure. If you keep following the text, Jesus then goes into what's maybe kind of an enigmatic passage. The eye is the lamp of the body, verse 22. Therefore, if our eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how terrible that darkness will be. And you're saying, eye, light, darkness, body, I don't know. I consulted many, many commentaries as I was studying this text, and they all said a similar thing. This is an idiomatic expression. This is an expression of the people of the time. And the bad eye is is similar. Some of you who've traveled to the Middle East have heard this expression. The bad eye, the dark eye, is similar to what is called the evil eye, the eye that, that looks, you know, suspiciously and, you know, the evil eye that casts sort of, you know, ill will. And the good eye has two possible means. The eye that's full of light. It's either the eye that is singular in its focus. It sees a different vision. Imagine that. Jesus saying, look, if the vision of your heart sees the true light, if the vision of your heart catches eternity, your whole being is going to be full of light. Or this expression could mean, it's a, it's a, idiom, a metaphor for generosity. So Jesus is saying, if your eye is full of light, if you're generous, that's going to flow into your whole being. Have you ever experienced the difference between a generous person and a stingy person? And I'm not talking about a person who has a lot and a person who has, but, but, you know, especially if you go on mission trips and sometimes you, the best hospitality you'll ever experience is by the people who have nothing and they welcome you in and they give you their last cup of tea and, they get, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, and their whole body is full of light. And you see it in their eyes because there's a generous heart coming out of them. And sometimes the more stuff we have, the less generous we are. You know? I think of the, the picture that I, you know, comes to mind when I think of this evil eye versus the generous eye is Lord of the Rings. You know, Gollum. My precious. You know, he thinks it's his. In the end, he is the rings, right? I mean, that's kind of this, this whole thing is he's found this precious. What does Beckinses want? <laughs> and all of a sudden, his whole life is suspicion and fear. Who, where is Beckinses? Where is these hobbitsies? He wants us, my precious. And his whole living is not, is not, it's not free and light. It's dark and suspicious. So Jesus is saying, when you let this stuff into your heart and grabbing a hold of you, it makes you turn outward with an evil eye. You're always suspicious. Who's trying to cheat me? Who's trying to defraud me? Who's trying to take advantage of me? Who's trying to do this? Instead of saying, it's not mine. My treasure's there. The location of our treasure's But Matthew 6, verse 22 then says this lust of our eyes, this evil eye versus the generous eye. Then the text goes on, verse 24. 
No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The location of our treasure, the lust of our eyes, finally the loyalty of our love. Jesus is bringing this home. And I'll tell you why I care about your money. I care about your money not because I am about to take up a special offering. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I care about your money because I care about your heart. I want the loyalty of your love. That to be a disciple of Jesus is to say, Jesus is my master. That's it. That discipleship is not a part-time endeavor. That the Christian life is not a Sunday thing. But the Christian life is an invitation to follow the Lord of all every hour of every day. The Christian life is an invitation to walk with Jesus always. Now, I, 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 some of you may be wondering about this love and hate language. Love the one, hate the other. This is, again, an idiomatic expression. Just basically, it's a, it's a way of the Jewish uh, language kind of describing a split allegiance. And saying uh, split allegiance is, is not really allegiance. Split loyalty is not really loyalty. So there's this language that we use today. We call it putting God first. Heard this language? Got to put God first. I would like to challenge that language. Because I think when you say, when you use language like putting God first, what it implies is you can put whatever else you want second or third or fourth. So when I was a kid, this perplexed me because I had youth pastors who said, you've got to put God first. So the first thing you do when you wake up has got to be to read your Bible. But sometimes I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> How do I put God first? Later in this sermon, Jesus will say, seek first the kingdom of God. But he doesn't mean just do that first and then you can go on to seeking other kingdoms. That's not what he means, is it? But see, I think subconsciously when we use this language of putting God first, we tend to think, oh, well, I put some money in the offering bucket at church. I'm good. I gave it, what, what do they call it, joy time or whatever? That's kind of corny, but yeah, I mean, I give to joy time my first and my best. Cool, I pick a, I'm done, I'm good, now I, can, I get the rest, right? And we have this idea that following Jesus is just a matter of putting him first, checking the box, and then saying, okay, the rest is mine, I can do whatever I want. If I want to go here, I can go here. If I want to do that, I can do that. If I want to spend it this way, I can spend it, yeah. But discipleship is different than that, isn't it? It's not about checking the box and saying, yeah, I, I did that. Yep, done. Gave to my church, gave to a missionary, sent the pastor a Starbucks gift card, you know. Just, I, I'm, I'm done, I'm, I'm done. Subliminal messaging this morning. We've seen this pattern in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is taking something from the Old Testament Torah and he's saying, let's get to the real heart of it, right? So he said, okay, you heard don't kill. I'm telling you, I want to get rid of hatred in your heart. And, and, and you've heard don't commit adultery. I, I'm, I want to get rid of this lust that objectifies people that's in your heart. Jesus is going deeper, right? So you've, you might as well, you could fill in the blank and say, Jesus is saying, look, you've heard give. In the Old Testament, it was like 10%, maybe 20% when they were building the temple. You know, there's always a building fund. And... and <laughs> and Jesus is saying, look, it's not 10% or 
Let me tell you what the new kingdom way is, 100%. It's all mine. You can't have divided loyalties. You can't say, well, as long as I put him first. No, no, see, Jesus doesn't want to be first. He wants to be center. Jesus doesn't want to be first. He wants to be the center, the thing that shapes everything else. The center of a circle is what gives the circle its shape because it's equidistant, right, from that point. Jesus wants to be the center that gives our lives its shape. It says, I want to reorganize, reorder everything. But why? Why does Jesus want to be? Because he's an egotistical God. When God asks for our love to glorify, to seek his glory, paradoxically it ends up being the very thing that is best for us. Paradoxically, the same thing that is for his glory is the thing that it's also for our joy and for our good because he made us. And so when Jesus says, I don't want you serving, you can't serve two masters, and that master is a terrible master. The reason Jesus is saying that is because Jesus is a better master. Jesus is a better master than money. Jesus is a better master than wealth or material things or the stuff of this world. More than that, he's not just a master. Why is he a better master? Because he doesn't enslave, true. He embraces the kind of servants, ser- servants that serve out of love. That's different than money. Money just forces you into, traps you into payments and things. But it's not just that he doesn't enslave. Jesus is a better master because he rewards. Church, I want to say this to you because I think somewhere in our distancing from um, following God for the sake of getting stuff, and I I understand why we want to distance ourselves from that kind of a motive, but somewhere along the way we've forgotten that the New Testament is full of promises of rewards, that they really are there. We serve God because He in Himself is worthy but it is his good pleasure to reward us as we serve him. That's the kind of generous God he is. So over and over again, Jesus doesn't chasten them. He doesn't say, don't you seek rewards. No, he says, listen, you need the heavenly reward. Get the one that can't be corrupted by moths and rust. Revelation 22, one of the last sections of Scripture Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me to repay all people as their actions deserve. That's beautiful. That's beautiful because you begin to see, okay, what I do here does matter. Not, it doesn't earn my salvation. It doesn't make me part of the family of God. It doesn't make me a Christian. None of that. But it does echo into eternity. And Jesus is saying, there's going to be a day where I'm coming, and when I come, I'm bringing my rewards with me. And it's for you. It's for you. All through the history of the church, there, are, there have been saints who took vows of poverty and vows of, of, of chastity and all of this stuff and served and spent their lives. Why? Because they believe there's a greater reward coming. Because they believe that everything, the best that this world could give, is no comparison to what Jesus gives. Jesus is not just a better master. Jesus himself is a better reward. 
There's a famous sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached out of Genesis 15 where God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And in this sermon, Spurgeon's going on and on saying, repeating this phrase, for God, and I can only imagine his Spurgeon voice, you know, God is the exceedingly great reward. Whatever this eternal reward is that Jesus has with him, even that is no comparison to the reward that Jesus is in himself. Do you believe that Jesus is a better reward? Do you believe that he is the great and glorious, exceedingly great reward? Imagine with me for a minute, what is money making you do? What kind of hours is money making you work? What kind of moments in your friends' lives or your children's lives or your spouse's lives, what kinds of moments is money making you miss out on? Now flip the question. What can you make money do? What can you make money do? Instead of saying, well, what is money making me do? Gosh, it's making me do this. It's It's making me go crazy. All this stuff, I've got to keep up with the stuff. Maybe flip the question and say, what can I make money do? What could you make money do? See, the powerful thing about Jesus and money is he doesn't say that money itself is evil. He talks about the easiness, the ease with which money can enslave us, but then he also says money can be leveraged for the kingdom. Through generosity, through giving, it can be leveraged for the kingdom. Earlier this week, I was on a Skype call with Corbin and Katrina Bryant. They're, uh, um, Mick and Mary come here, they're YWAMers, and Corbin and Katrina are doing business as mission in Nepal. And they're trying to start up this textile factory for uh, women who've been r- rescued from the s- sex trafficking industry. And so I periodically will have Skype appointments, we'll chat, and say, how's it going? And, and we were talking about the frustrations of starting a business in the context of Nepal, <laughs> And, and, and he had specific things he could say, look, it's corruption, it's communism, it's culture, it's all of these things. So, so listen, sometimes it's easy for young people to vilify corporations and capitalism and to say, oh, evil. And I get it. Believe me, I get it. I see where greed animates capitalism. I see that. I see where greed turns it into corporatism and corporations are running things not for the good of society but for the obesity and disease. I see that. And so the temptation, particularly for young people, is to say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want money. I don't want markets. I don't want corporations. I don't want capitalism. The heck with all of it. I just want Jesus. And I get it. But I want to say to you that there is no perfect environment in which we work. And comparatively speaking, I think we have an environment that allows us the freedom to make money and leverage money here in America than a lot of other places in the world have. And this is not a, this is not a yay America Sunday. This is just, hey, this stuff is real. Talk to people who try to do businesses in other parts of the world. It is hard. Talk to them about trying to make money and leverage that money for any other aim. And it's like, I, uh, yeah, I can't even get this thing off the ground. But here we are in this society, in this day, and in this age. Are there complications with being involved with 
our markets and our corporations? You bet. Are there sometimes unethical things that we're implicated in? You bet. Are there purchases that we make that we're like, gosh, I wish I didn't, I wish I could only shop at the farmer's market or at Yobel or at, you know, and we should buy more local and all of that stuff. Support CSAs. I'm for it. We do it. We buy our meat and our, 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 uh, a, good amount, a good amount of our meat from local farms in Colorado. I'm for it. But does that mean that if there's any hint of ickiness, <laughs> that we should leave it and exit it and say, ah, I can't do it? This phrase, when Jesus talks about two masters, shows up in one other gospel. It shows up in Luke. And it shows up in Luke when Jesus is telling the story of the unjust steward. Do you remember this story? It's basically the steward who's mismanaged his master's business. And he's mismanaged it, though, because he's not been making enough. So at first, you know, depending on where you are, you might be taking the side of the, the steward and you're saying, well, he's just the 2%. He's trying to stick it to the 98%. You know, like he just can't, you know, or he's the 98% rather trying to stick it. You know, he doesn't... Or maybe you take the side of the master and you think, this is a lazy, rotten... You know. Then all of a sudden, this guy decide, he comes up on a plan. He says, okay, I'm going to be fired. I am so losing my job. He goes, I'm going to go to all the creditors and say, instead of paying 100, pay 50. And he does it. He cancels all the bills. He's, cha- he's cooking the books. He's changing invoices. And they pay him the, 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 you know, the new amount. And he kind of does a wink-wink, so remember me later, huh? When I don't have a job and I need more clients, eh? And you're like, what is this story about? I don't know. Honestly, I don't really know. <laughs> it's hard to make sense of it. But he comes back and you think the master's going to be like, you are, you're not just lazy, you're corrupt. But instead the master says, dude, that was impressive. I'm not even mad. That was amazing. And he says, and then Jesus says, the sons of darkness, or the sons of this world, children of this world, are more shrewd with ungodly wealth than the children of light. Would that you would learn to leverage, basically he's saying to leverage ungodly money for godly gain. Yeah, money can be a cruel master, but money can be leveraged for some pretty amazing things. Money can be leveraged to fund Mission work overseas, money can be leveraged to build schools, money can be leveraged to dig wells, money can be leveraged to support young lifers who are mentoring the the teenagers and youth in our own city, money can be leveraged to help trafficking be stopped in our country, and money can be leveraged for all kinds of eternal things. So there's no perfect situation, but there is a way to think about money differently. There is a way to break out of the slavery of money and come under this servanthood of Jesus, the great master and the great reward, and to say, okay, if I'm yours, then my money is yours and my ability to make money is yours. And all of it is going to be leveraged for the kingdom. See, Paul, whenever Paul asked for money, he was not like apologetic about it. That's one of the many reasons I admire Paul. Paul said, look, what I'm giving you is an opportunity to redeem Godly, ungodly wealth for godly gain. That's a great opportunity. Your money in your bank account is just money. It's going to be gone. But your money put to work in the kingdom makes an impact far beyond what you could ever imagine. 
And Paul, when, when Paul says this to the Philippians and to others, when he's talking about it, he says, look, I'm offering you an opportunity to partner with me so that your ungodly money can become godly gain. It can be leveraged. C.S. Lewis off, bristled against the phrase, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. You ever heard that? Oh, you church people, oh, you, oh, you Christians. So heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. And Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next world. The apostles themselves who set, foot on the, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth. Why? Precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Precisely because their minds were occupied, let's put it in our language, with an arriving kingdom. Precisely because their minds were occupied with saying, God is ushering in a new age and I am a citizen of that world. I belong to the future. I belong to the future world that Jesus is bringing in. And so therefore I live here this way. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Isn't that powerful? It's because we as Christians only think that this world is all there is, that this life is all there is. So get it while you can. Make it good while you can. Have the best vacations. Give the best gifts. Take the best trips. Do all of it because this is all there is. And Jesus stands up and says, it's a lie. There's something better. There's something. Think of that scene at the end of Schindler's List where he says, this pin could have been one more life and this thing, I mean, I mean, would you want to come to the end of your days and said, oh God, that boat, that house, that cabin, that condo, that could have been, or maybe it is. Maybe you said, thank God that our cabin or our condo was always to bless someone else. Maybe you did use it that way. Maybe you did leverage a possession and you said, this was always the way that we invited people in and discipleship happened because of this or in these environments. That's the way you redeem homes and houses and stuff. I'm not saying liquid, you know, turn everything into liquid assets and give it away. Maybe. But maybe the answer is to say, well, I have the assets I have, but how can I leverage these assets for the kingdom? All right, well, let's look, I don't know if I want to lead a meal group, but I'll host it. I know there's a lot of young people who live in, in small downtown condos that would be happy to lead it, but they don't got the home for it. I've got the home for it. Let's do it. So Young Life, you said there's Young Life for here. How can we, can, we, can we help them do activities? Can we host this? Can we offer this? Can we do, how can I leverage my stuff for something that resonates beyond this world? Because it can be done. can be done. Sometimes when we're making our budget, <laughs> Holly and I use this phrase, we're like, babe, we can't think like rich people. <laughs> like we're, we're spending like we're rich people. We're not rich people. You know. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, we spend like we're poor people. Yeah. But as I was thinking about that this week, neither are correct. Don't live like you're, don't think like you're rich people and don't think like you're poor people. Think like you're kingdom people. Think like you belong to a different age. Think like you belong to a different world. Spend your money like you belong to the future that Jesus is bringing. Spend your wealth, leverage your stuff, use your possessions like you belong to an age that is breaking into this one. Not like this is all you have. Imagine living that way. Now, I, I gotta tell you that 
there, is, there are few topics that are more um, prone for self-deception than this one. You know, there's that famous story in the book of Acts where Ananias and Sapphira come to the apostles and they say, okay, we're going to, hey, we sold everything and here it is. And Peter says, to hell with you and your money. Basically. Boom, they're struck dead. Why? Because they only gave half? No, because they lied. This is the thing about money. It is, there are few things that deceive us more than how our hearts are about stuff. There's a story of uh, this famous Methodist bishop, Will Willimon, preaching as a young preacher to his congregation about the evils of wealth and all this stuff. He's a fiery sermon. And you know the way the Methodist church government is, this lady came up to him who sits on many of the boards and the councils, and she said, Pastor, wonderful sermon on money. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that it moved you. And she goes, should we, should we as the finance committee take this to mean that you don't need a raise? And he goes, uh, because I, I could stand up here and preach this, but this thing has a grip on all of us. And the capacity for our, us to deceive ourselves is great. So what we need to do right now is bow our heads and pray. What we need to do right now is to ask God for his grace. What we need to do right now is to say, dear God, have mercy. Help me. I want you to be my master, not stuff. I want the next world to be the place that I belong into. I want to store up treasures in heaven by my generosity, by my leveraging my stuff and my... But God, I know how easily deceived I am. But God, I know how quickly, uh, how alluring greed is. I know how subtle this is in my own heart. God, have mercy. Would you quietly, right where you are, begin to confess to the Lord? And to be honest, I think this is for all of us. If we can all confess and say, God, forgive me for my heart's attachments and entanglements to this world and this life. Help me, God. Save me, God. Have mercy on me, God. Bring my heart into the loyalty and allegiance to you. Just quietly where you are, pray that.